This is Vernon Oaks, Everything Cooperative. You know, we are very excited about this day in that we have Cecile Green and Rebecca Fisher Magenti on the line with us, and they are from Round Sky Solutions. Good morning, ladies. Good morning, Vernon. How are you guys doing today? Doing well. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you for being on. And what part of the world are you all in? <laughs> well, I'm in uh, the center of Vermont, right near our beautiful capital city, Montpelier. And Rebecca, are you on the line? You want to yes. share where well, you're from? I'm actually, right now I'm in Halifax, Nova Scotia in Canada for just a weekend, but I live in New Orleans, Louisiana. Uh, are you from New Orleans? I'm from California, but I've been in New Orleans for about five years, and it feels like home for me. Well, you got to yeah. say it the right way, then. It's New Orleans. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there are so many ways to say it. It's amazing. The more, the longer I stay there, it's quite, quite the variety of ways to say it. <laughs> yeah, I love New Orleans, New Orleans. Yeah. Uh, what is Round Sky Solutions? Ah, thanks for asking, Vernon. Um, we are a worker co-op, and we specialize in teaching a democratic or participatory leadership and management system to uh, cooperative leaders, to coaches and consultants, and, and leaders worldwide. So what is cooperative leadership? <laughs> Good question. Yeah, so... Well, cooperative leadership is really uh, a, a nice word for talking about how we can share power together as we work um, and to do so effectively and efficiently. Um, often uh, experiments into participatory management, uh, democratic leadership, all that kind of stuff are, can be challenged by some of the mechanics of how to share power. Um, my theories are that it, it comes from you know a very long time, millennia worth really of uh, autocratic leadership practices that we've, you know, seen in action around our globe uh, for quite some time. And we're all raised in that environment. We're all raised with autocratic leadership as the default leadership modality. And so learning how to do it cooperatively actually takes, it takes innovation, it takes um, good practices, good processes, and, and, you know, doing that over time so that we can embed new ways of sharing power together um, that aren't based on, you know, what we've inherited. Okay, so I just want to go all the way back then to autocratic. Autocratic, how I see autocratic, tell me if it's the right, is, is in the church you have the pastor, and then you have the deacons, and it goes all the way down to the members. In a household, it says the father is the head, but too often it's the mom, but they're the head, Okay. <laughs> Yeah. All right. And in the U.S. government, it's the president and in state governments. And then also in a business, you have a president or chief executive officer. You may have a board over top of them, but then that management this goes to that president. And then it falls down to vice presidents and directors or managers and supervisors. And then you have the people working on the assembly line or whatever that business is. Is that what you mean by autocratic? Auto, one person leading? Yeah, that's a great question. Thanks, Vernon. Uh, so when I say autocratic, I really mean a leadership that is coming from either one person or one entity. So it could be a board or it could be a you know a single GM or CEO. Um, but they're using their power in a way that is making decisions for other people and not including their perspectives and how those decisions are made. The decisions that impact the front line in a cooperative uh, management system, the decisions made by the front line are, are in the hands of those who are doing that work. Now, the CEO, the GM, the board may have other scale of questions and decisions that they make. So it's not necessarily about the fact Cooperative leadership doesn't, you know, make everything horizontal in terms of the different departments we have and how those nest. But it does say give the people who are doing the work the right to make decisions about how that work is done and to be accountable back to themselves for getting it done. Okay, so now does that I'll, distinction make sense? That distinction makes a lot of sense. So I want to go talk about the definition of a worker cooperative. So, oh, why don't you tell us? I have one, but why don't you tell us what is a worker cooperative? <laughs> So a worker co-op is, a, is a, a business that is owned and operated by the workers themselves. 
So it, it, it's not just run by a single you know person with all the decisions being made by them. But again, all of the people are not only involved in their own management and leadership, but they actually literally own a portion of the business as well. So that's one member, one vote. That's correct. So in each person that works there is a member, an owner, and then they get one vote, and then they have some decision-making. So the difference between a co-op, and that's democratically controlled. So in an autocrat, you've got somebody telling you, making decisions up top and pushing those down, and the people on the floor, the assembly line or whatever, have no say, or they don't get the input. In a co-op, okay, democratically run, they have a say. So why do you need this collaborative thing you're talking about? It's <laughs> <laughs> a great question. Well, the mechanics of how we do that are, are not necessarily self-explanatory. And especially, as I mentioned earlier, because we've grown up in this culture where we've implicitly learned how to lead autocratically, um, that often those autocratic ways uh, creep back in without our even knowing it, without our even wanting it to be there. You know, I've met some really fine leaders who are really dedicated to this idea of participatory leadership and management, and yet, um, you know, find themselves sort of stuck in these same ruts of, of you know, having uh, too much decision-making power or, you know, whatever it may be. There's a lot of different symptoms that show up. And so having a researched and tested uh, reliable process that will enable democratic control, participatory leadership, um, really makes a huge difference in terms of how effectively and efficiently an organization can run. And I think I'll add an example here, if I may. Okay, Um, and this is Rebecca. This is Rebecca. Mm -hmm. And so just to kind of paint the picture, that with some of our clients that often happens with founder syndrome in our co-op. So founder syndrome is where a founder, usually the person who starts a co-op kind of has this power. They Maybe they don't need to have it, but they have this power over the co-op where people go to them for decisions, for the inspiration maybe. They kind of hold this power and they don't, They've we've heard from founders that they don't know how to, hey, co-op members, like take on your part or I don't want to be the decision maker for everything kind of feel. And sometimes it's something else, but Mm -hmm. that kind of, we don't know, we don't always know how to get out of that traditional autocratic leadership that we're surrounded by. So that just to paint that. Okay. So I've experienced that in my business. I've, I have a property management business. I've managed co-ops, condos and uh, apartment buildings. And this is where I learned about co-ops about 25 years ago. And I find as I try to push the decision making down to the folks in the, you know, you, they invariably will ask me to make the decision. <laughs> yeah. Invariably. So yeah, I got yep. it. And that's a challenge that many many people we work with face, and it's I think it just takes some figuring out. People need to be shown how how to unlearn what they've been in for their families, their churches, other faith organizations, we even our households and our schools, we have this this structure that we're always in. So it takes more than just wanting to do collaboration. It really takes from all levels, I think, some unlearning. Some unlearning and relearning. Mm-hmm. Indeed. Yeah. And I, I would add to that by saying that Part of what needs to learn is the collective. So you can't just teach this one person at a time. It's how we operate together that matters and having a shared language for how we do that together and shared processes that everyone is using and we've all consented to use makes a huge difference in terms of being making this possible to do. Mm-hmm. So you come in with your worker cooperative and you help other organizations get this shared processes, this shared communications, and you have to teach everybody together. If it's a big organization, that seems like that would be daunting. <laughs> Good question. Well, actually, the, the largest organization that we've worked with so far is a 2,000-person uh, uh, bank. And so it is it is doable. It's possible. What we recommend is starting with a pilot team that um, learns the processes and then they become the teachers that sort of spread it organically throughout the organization. So it's not like it has to happen all at one time. 
Um, and in fact, it's much better if it happens organically over time. Um, that teams are sort of introduced and they implement these these practices. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about your company. Okay, how many people work in Round Sky Solutions, and uh, how do you all operate, particularly as a cooperative? Yeah. Great question. Well, there's four of us as uh, worker owners at this point, and we are distributed, you know, around the world. So we don't have a single place that we, you know, a, a brick and mortar. Um, so we, we operate virtually, and we use the, the, these tools Collab to do that. And um, so we, it feels very important for us to be using and testing these tools and evolving them ourselves as part of. Um, part of you know how we teach it and it's certainly it's important for us to, to model it and and uh, make sure that it is actually working so did that answer your question in terms of how we operate as a co-op or do you want more detail okay do you use the cooperative values and principles yes um, we do uh, for sure so each each one of us um, has a we, we represent our, our own one you know one member one one vote. The membership is open and voluntary. Uh, any of the associates, we call ourselves associates, um, can you know come and go as they need to. Uh, and we are all, in terms of members, we democratically control the organization together. So we collectively decide on things like our purpose, our vision, mission, and values. Also, our business model. Um, so we use open book management as part of how we we operate together. Um, likewise, we make uh, collective decisions about what our strategy or our, our priorities are right now. Um, all of our decisions about our governance are made together. And we have a collaborative accountability system. So it's not like one of us is sort of managing everyone else. We co-manage. And um, we also have practices for if there's interpersonal conflict that arises and uh, also, uh, personal development uh, as a focus, which I find is, is incredibly important for any organization that wants to undertake participatory or democratic leadership and management is to to have personal development as a as a norm, as something that we're all working on. So that's um, that's a little bit about how how we work and operate together. So, so, so you founded this company, right? I co-founded it with my uh, thought and, and life partner at the time, Daniel Little, and we founded that in, in 2012. And we took the first few years to really work out the um, the training model that we use today. Um, and then in 2016, we were actu uh, actually able to onboard uh, both Rebecca and, and Charlotte, who are two other worker owners. And um, that's uh, sort of how we've grown since then. So, Rebecca... Do you look for Cecile to make the decisions? Well, we have, so in CoLab, we have clear roles about what kind of decisions we're making. So I would say no, partially because we have these roles where we know what, each, what decision each other is making. So anything that is around communication with our website, with however the world sees us, is usually through my hands. Okay. <laughs> But I make all those decisions. I'll ask for feedback and, and implement it as I want to. And that's how we operate at this point. Okay. You know, uh, Cecile, you said something. When you have participatory management and folks know how decisions are made and have a say-so, I wouldn't think you would have any upsets. <laughs> See, I <wouldn't... laughs> Conflict is a natural part of working with other people. It, it happens. And one of the most important sort of reframings I like to offer the um, co-ops we work with, the organizations we work with, is that conflict isn't bad, that we can actually turn that into fuel or positive solutions for the organization. And so it's not something to be um, sort of shoved under the carpet or avoided. In fact, it's something that you can cultivate. These differences in perspective are really actually tremendously valuable for the organization if you have a good process. If you don't, then they can be very derailing and, and consuming and destructive and problematic. Um, but the, the truth is that conflict happens, even in our most cooperative organizations. And so it can be really simple things, you know, like like, for example, Rebecca was just saying, like, she has decisions over the website. And 
if but if that wasn't clear, then I might say, hey, Rebecca, I really don't like that paragraph. You need to change it. And that would then cause conflict. Rebecca would be like, but is that your decision or my decision? Mm -hmm. And so the healthy thing to do is to sit down and clarify, well, whose decision is it? And then once we have that clear at a pattern level, that source of conflict is uh, is now it's 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 been used to make a clearer and more efficient um, organization. And Rebecca also has this sort of healthy autonomy over her roles um, that doesn't compromise what the collective might need her to do, because the collective can always come back and say, Rebecca, we need to change this role a little bit here or there. Uh, let's make you also responsible for this thing. And and so we can change these agreements. They are they're super flexible, um, but having them be clear uh, really eliminates a lot of a lot of potential conflict, but allows us to you know make use of it when it does come up. So if you wanted Rebecca to make a change on the website in that paragraph, <laughs> as the co-founder, you would not say make the change. You wouldn't make that would decision say, and direct it. What would you do? I would say, Rebecca, this is my input for you. I think this paragraph is confusing. Um, maybe it should focus a little bit more on X, Y, or Z. And Rebecca would then take that as input only. And she would say, okay, yes, I, I think you're right, or no, I don't, or this part is good, that part I'm not going to integrate. And I have let go at that point. I've given her my input, and she has the autonomy to make that decision. And the reason that happens is that we have these clear role boundaries. And I know that Rebecca, within her roles as comms wizard, that's that's the power I have asked her to take on in service of the whole. Yeah, but but wait now, hold Cecile. I I know that my paragraph is better than hers. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Because I've been out there of talking course. to my customers, and they give me the feedback, and da 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 So I know it's better, but so if she says, no, I don't want to change it, then well, I, I, we got conflict. We got conflict. <laughs> you got it. <laughs> Rebecca, do you want to say anything about how that would that would work itself out? Sure. I think that if we're – I mean, we're talking about a paragraph, so I I can hear people chuckling on the other side of this. And I think when it comes to decisions like that, things that are, are smaller, like one paragraph on our website, then it, I think it takes some ego checking of it's not about who has a better paragraph, but it's about what we've decided as a team about who who has power to make what decisions. And if then it becomes about something else, like the larger brand strategy, maybe that's a decision that's our collective. And so it's not on one person to Maybe I ship everything on our website to say a whole a whole different name, and that 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 kind of huge shift and that kind of something that could possibly do harm to our organization because it's so different. I didn't get the collective consent on that. Then that would be, I think, that kind of decision would be something that the collective would be like, hey, 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 that that's really not going to work. That's not that's not in your authority to make that decision. I don't know if I'm being clear, if that makes sense. But we, we have this kind of way of being of is this good enough for now? Is this is this gonna do harm to try this? Maybe it's not the thing that I would choose, but it's this person's role. Is this gonna do harm? If not, let's try it. And then if it does, in the case that it does, then let's back up. But we can get stuck in the best. Like what's the best paragraph, what's the best word, what's the best moment. So we really, we don't want to get stuck in per perfection, which is not possible. So we, we really, I don't know if it's our value, but something that we go off of is, is this, can we just try something out? Can we do this together? And this changing, we have a changing economic environment and everything's changing around us. So we have to be, we have to be able to change as well. Well, I, I think I'm, I'm way back to your first comment is uh, we have to check our egos. Yeah, yeah, that gets to be a big piece of it. Maybe the hardest part. Yeah, I try to leave mine at home. I say, stay, boy, stay, but it, it gets out sometimes. It gets out. Oh, yes. Mine, mine definitely gets out. <laughs> and, and mine, too, for sure. 
and what's help, I think I think it's really important to acknowledge that that's just going to happen, and that that what's important is that we have mechanisms to to be reminded that you know, hey, this is the boundary, and thank you for your input, and I'm going to make the decision from here, and so. I have the opportunity um, to, to, you know, give my input and then recognize that after that, that's my time to let go. I have this really clear place that I can let go around, and that helps so much. It also helps to know that I can, if there is harm being caused, I can bring that back to our collective and say, look, here's the harm that's being caused. And then out of that, we're going to do something different. And Rebecca can't block that. She can't block that change. If I see harm, I'm going to say, here's, here's the harm I'm seeing. And Rebecca will then have to integrate that in some way, shape, or form. It'll still be her decision how exactly she integrates it, but she can't reject that out of hand completely. Yeah. So both of those things have to be operating in order for it to be safe to let go, especially as a founder. You know, there's obviously perspectives that we bring to the table that are – are hugely important and can't be ignored, not not if we want to keep operating in a healthy way. And so, you know, you kind of need both of those those mechanisms in order to be able to integrate that input without getting sort of derailed back into the founder syndrome or back into the, you know, one person sort of making large decisions on behalf of everyone in the organization, unless they've been specifically asked to do so, and unless that's specifically part of their roles. So in the principles, we talked about volunteer and open membership. We talked about democratic member control, one member, one vote. We haven't talked about member economic participation. So for the four of you, did you all pay something in and then you do you get something out if there are profits or surpluses? Yeah, exactly. So um, we all pay in a uh, $5,000 uh, member contribution, and that can be paid up front when you join or you can be paid over time. Those decisions are made individually, and that comes back to you when you leave. Um, and then we actually sp- split the profits that we make uh, you know, on a monthly basis based on the amount of time that we've put in, based on our patronage. Uh, we also have a a formula that we use to uh, create the exact hourly wage that's based upon the same sort of base amount. Um, and then depending upon how many roles you're carrying, how much responsibility, um, how long you've worked for the organization, you got a little bit of a bump up, or up for each of those those things that impact your pay. And so the spread is really, you know, within a few dollars of each of us, but, um, but we get uh, essentially, you know, we take the profit at the end of the month and we split it based on that that uh, number of hours and the actual hourly wage. Wow! So this open book management. I'm gonna, we're going to take a break here in a couple minutes, but after we come back, I want to talk about that. That becomes very important. That everybody can see the books. Yeah, exactly. You got it for a whole bunch of reasons, particular pay stuff. Okay. Then autonomy and independence, uh, that you, this, your group, you don't have the government or any banks or anybody telling you how to operate, that the four of you really operate the business. That's correct. Yep. And you've already mentioned education, training, and information is extremely important, that you have to have this personal growth, this consistently, continually growing and learning. Yeah, absolutely. Do the four of you have a plan, an annual plan for what kind of training you're going to get and how you're going to get it? I, I assume you may have it for your clients, what training they're going to do. But do you have it for yourself? It's varied over the years. So again, this is an example of how we've dynamically steered um, based on our current conditions. So at times we've had regular what we call personal development meetings. And during those meetings, each one of us gets to craft our own learning plan with the feedback of, of the rest of us. And um, that's then something that they report at at the next meeting. Well, how is it going? You know, can we offer you any support? Here's some additional feedback based on my experience with you in the last month or whatever it's been. And, um, and then we all get to do that. Um, so it's not just one person or two people, but all of us are, are sort of crafting our own plan and moving it forward. Okay. How is cooperation among cooperatives? Well, it's, it's pretty important. <laughs> Absolutely. And uh, we have a variety of partnerships with um, different uh, cooperatives and, and definitely uh, 
for example, just concretely Wait, speaking, Cecile, we have I'm a, sorry. Let me give you that example right after the break. We have to take a break, and okay. we'll be right back, and we'll get that example in cooperation among cooperatives. We'll be right back. Please don't touch that dial. Welcome back, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks. The program is Everything Cooperative, and we're talking with Cecile Green and Rebecca Fisher-McGinty of Round Sky Solutions this morning. And this program is brought to you by the National Cooperative Bank, whose mission is to support and be an advocate for America's cooperatives and their members, especially in low-income communities, by providing innovative financial and related services. Now, Cecile and Rebecca, NCB just bought some equipment for us to take the show on the road. And last week I was in Seattle and I broadcast live from Seattle. And next week I'll be in Birmingham, Alabama going live. So we're trying something to take the program out on the road and see how that goes. I've been having fun. <laughs> so That's we'll be exciting. on the road next week. That's great. So I might be able to get yeah. to the Nolans, uh, Rebecca, and interview down there <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> some red beans and rice and some etouffee and all of that good stuff down there. Okay. Uh, let's go back. Come on over. <laughs> <laughs> okay, come on down. All right. So we were talking about cooperation among cooperatives. Uh, you were going to give us some examples of how that works, Cecile, before we took the break? Yeah. Yeah, so... Uh, one simple example of how we do that is we have a special reduced rate that we charge uh, any any cooperative uh, <clears throat> compared to, say, a business that's uh, not a cooperative. Uh, so that's one way in which we offer offer concrete support uh, for costs that, that want to work with us. And I think Rebecca had an example, too. Yes. Another – I often work with other co-op around since my job is around marketing and communications i often talk to other people in that role mm-hmm. at other co-ops and we share each other's stuff out i mean this this virtual world is so much online is that we're so we're constantly sharing each other's news articles or offers that are coming out they're they're big wins and also just building community i think there's i'll meet someone at a at like the California Co-op Conference, and I'll we'll have a chat afterward about how we could collaborate. So we did a free webinar on I think founder syndrome with cooperation works, and I, I know they're not a co-op, but this similar cooperation among with other groups is something that I feel like is really important for our communication strategy, personally, and for the world. Oh, it's about. Ten years ago, I figured out what I want to be when I grow up, and that is uh, to promote and develop co-ops for all of the positive reasons of cooperation. We're talking now about decisions being made by the people that are doing the work, which is a major. So people really feel better about themselves. And one of the reasons I like Mm co-ops, also like co-ops because of that principle of this uh, economic participation that folks get to get a, that's a third principle, they get a, piece of whatever profit and that's the way i find that people can get create financial wealth mm-hmm. and it doesn't go to the shareholder who the capitalistic shareholder who's not working in the business may not live in the community may not live in the state may not even live in this country mm-hmm. and they get the profits so i like co-ops a lot but the main reason is to promote and develop co-ops so, Rebecca, I like it when when you say that you're meeting with other communication specialists, public relations, communications, and I just encourage you to figure out how, when you're talking to these people or yourself, how we can promote this whole cooperative brand um, mm-hmm. to really get people to understand what a co-op is. Because in marginalized communities, even National Co-op Bank says that they do you know, great financial things in low-income communities. But in these marginalized cultures with African-American, uh, Native American, Latin America, or I'm from Appalachia, so it's anybody mm-hmm. almost in Appalachia, no matter what the race, mm-hmm. that, that they can get this this model of cooperation and working together can build social, political, and financial wealth and feel great about self. Absolutely. I think, I, and I think part of that is, sharing that at work. I talked to people, my family members, um, who uh, would not consider themselves participating in 
any meaningful way in the economy about co-ops and they're just like, how does that work? Mm -hmm. And then the the family members that have maybe um, that own small businesses, they're they're totally baffled by the idea of giving power to their, their workers. So I think it's, it's really that education piece and showing the success stories is I think part of like, Hey, come, it works. Come try this. Come try this out. This is, this is the alternative from what's really not working for our world in lots of ways in really harmful ways and in ways that are not as obviously harmful. So that, that part to me is, that community building about how do we communicate how do we communicate this and share our wins is really important to me also. Well, you're you're a bit also talking about the values, the values of cooperation, self help. I like that a lot. Self responsibility, democracy. We've talked about equality, equity, and solidarity. And you've been your business is on this whole solidarity um, part of the value system. But it says, in the tradition of the founders of cooperatives, cooperative members believe in the ethical values of honesty, openness, social responsibility, and caring for others. And to me, once we get that, particularly caring for others, and it seemed like when I grew up in West Virginia, it was it was it was the whole community that raised us. It did. It was no question about it. If we did something wrong in the street, it got to mom. Matter of fact, we may have gotten blessing out or whooping out in the street and got it when we got home too. So it was the whole community, you know. <laughs> uh, so the, the the seventh principle is concern for community, and that's sort of, that's in the DNA of cooperatives. Is that how do we how do we help the community? And that's Rebecca's right on. But when we talked about the employees live in the communities where they work, they also shop in those communities and that money stays in the community and multiplies so that it by itself builds a community if nothing else did. Uh, but a lot of co-ops would take some portion of their profits and plow it back in the communities. Any comments on that? When I just, that dialogue? Yeah, I think because we are a virtual business, it looks, I think it looks a little different for us, mm-hmm. but but on that note, uh, we we are a part of the U.S. Federation for Worker Co-ops, so contributing to their to that that hub of of knowledge and resources to to local communities and and being in New Orleans, I like I think because I'm a part of a co-op and and kind of how my what I'm what's on my mind is that I'm I'm thinking about how am I putting my dollars in the community, that kind of, that individual part of me, but also, like, I think it really, just just being a part of a co-op has totally changed my view of uh, finances. I, I had never been a part of any kind of finance meeting before. I'd only been told, like, you might have a job in two months at a nonprofit, but never, never showed the numbers or given any real real power over that. So I think being knowing our finances at Round Sky and then being able to have a better understanding of how the small businesses in my community may be working and supporting them is, has just been very valuable. Well, you hit what I was going to ask you a little bit about. Um, by the way, for those of you out there that don't know the U.S. Federation of Worker Cooperatives, you can go to usworker.coop to their homepage and get information. If you mm-hmm. if you say, my friends and I, two or three, four or five friends, want to start a business and working together, you may want to consider um, U.S. Worker Cooperative, a worker cooperative, and you can get support there. Or if you wanted training, you could go to Round Sky Solutions and get trainings on how to operate. So um, okay. there's a lot of a lot of places you can go get technical support. But who are some of your clients? And when I was talking about the being staying in the community, I was really more thinking because you are virtual, thinking about some of the clients mm-hmm. that you're working with. So who are some of those? And tell us a little bit about what kind of work you do for them. Nice. Well, um, yeah, gosh. 
we've had uh, just a huge range of clients. Um, so uh, just to, to start out, um, we have been working with uh, Cooperative Development Institute for the last uh, two and a half years or so, and we've been essentially incrementally, we started out with, with helping them, um, you know, figure out their strategy, um, revisit their purpose, and um, and then I spent a, a fair bit of time on, on the basics of, you know, how do we do governance and, and operations together as teams in, in a way that's participatory. Uh, so that's, um, that's CDI. We've also worked uh, with a number of small local co-ops uh, from a construction uh, company here in, in central Vermont called Timber Homes. Uh, to another um, small uh, co-op called Woodbe Woodbelly Pizza, also based here in in Vermont, and that's um, and, and also uh, another co-op that's in the middle of making a transition. Uh, Nutty Staffs, it's a local um, chocolate production company, and they've been sort of going through the process of of becoming a worker-owned organization. So wait, 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 that one it, that one was owned by somebody and then the, the members are taking it over? That was Nutty Steps? Nutty Steps, yep. Okay. Yeah, so that's on the small end. On the on the large end, we, we've also worked with uh, Marlboro College. We led them through a strategic planning process using these tools. And I mentioned uh, the bank. Uh, that was a, a Russian bank called Kiwi Bank. Had the opportunity to go in Moscow and do some intensive training with them there in person, and then uh, followed up with some some virtual training to sort of stabilize that that implementation there. And gosh, there's there's a whole lot more folks um, out there that we've worked with as well. But that hopefully gives you a, a range, a sense of sense of things. And then specifically in our training programs, uh, we are working with with leaders from everything from the Champlain Housing Trust, which is a a local organization that that helps uh, housing co-ops get off the ground. Uh, to a um, consultant in, in Paris, to a, a retired mining executive in Ghana who's uh, starting his own business and, and uh, took the training with us and is using those tools as he uh, goes about uh, his new adventures. Wow, you're all over the place. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you mentioned Russia, Ghana, Vermont. Okay. And so our trainings are re oh sorry our trainings are remote so some of them are some of them are in person but our the one that we encourage people our our collaborative leadership certification program is remote so people can just plug in from anywhere which is kind of amazing so you just get all these people from different perspectives from all over the world and sometimes they're just all in the U.S. and there's a wealth of perspectives within one city here and then but it's kind of it's really amazing i get the honor of meeting all these people to make sure that the program is the right fit for them and just the amount of amazing things that people are working on and caring about gives me hope for what what is the next phase of our our world okay so what is this collaborative leadership what, what is that about you said you can go online and get a certificate program. Right. So we we do work with organizations um, with like a customized type of training. So if, for example, uh, the Cooperative Development Institute, we worked with them through strategy and um, supporting their their growth areas. And and on the other side, we have our our training, our certification, their their growth areas and. And on the other side, we have our our training, our certification program. So the Collaborative Leadership Certification Program has three levels, and we this is a really intensive online online training with us. The first level is ten weeks, and we go over a really effective meeting practice. Often, just shifting meetings are are transformative for teams. We support leaders through their own, like what's their personal development growth for the program and beyond so they can continue to work on that. We talk about accountability and how we're prioritizing the endless projects that we have, that our leaders have. 
um, as they're working their co-ops and beyond. And we talk about really clarifying roles. The thing we were talking about earlier around my role is communications and my autonomy over my work. That, and I think a lot of co-ops are doing that intuitively, but sometimes we don't communicate that as well, or we're not, our, our members aren't on the same page about who's doing what. And so getting really clear about those roles and um, who has, who can make what decisions so we don't have to guess and then make conflict more likely. So that, that's the first level. And then that really sets someone up to start facilitating as with these new tools and skills in their team as a cooperative or collaborative leader. However, that whatever word that person wants to use, we kind of use them interchangeably at Round Sky. And so, then level two is... Before you go there, let me just make sure people that listening may be interested. You can go to roundskysolutions.com and and click on offerings. I just did this while you were talking, Rebecca. So uh, and and so it's roundskysolutions.com and you hit offerings and then courses and this it comes up as level one CLCP and um, so. Yeah, okay. And so you have to apply yeah, we, by so, September 13th. Okay. Yes, September 13th is our deadline our next um, for our fall cohort. And we have an informational call coming up on September 6th. So if people are even just a little bit interested, they can, they can come um, listen in on what more of the details about the program and hear from past students. We invite past students to come talk about what are some of the things they're using and what were they hoping to get out of it? And it's a chance for people to ask questions to those who have gone through it. And it's really, I really enjoy those informational calls because you, A, it's nice to hear what how people are using it afterward. And it's just a really fun environment to talk about how these leaders that are taking on so much are really caring about their own personal development growth and their own education, as well as those in their, their community. All right, so information call on September the 6th, what time and what number? They can, um, they go to that, go to roundsidesolutions.com and find level one under offerings. There's a link there that will let them sign up. It'll be on Zoom, which is a meeting and um, a video meeting platform. And I believe it's at 2 p.m. Eastern, although I'm not looking at that right in front of me. Okay. Yeah, I think it's uh, 12.30. Just pull it up. 12.30, yep. yep. 12.30 to 1.30 okay. Eastern Time, yes. Okay. Great. About halfway down the page. Okay, got it. Mm-hmm. Okay, so, so I can get information on what can be learned by calling in on September the 6th, 12.30, yes. or going online on, was it Zoom or Skype? Well, if you if people are interested and they go to our website, there is a link that you can click and um, put your your name and your email, and it'll send you all the details about how to call in. Okay. And that's on a, it'll be on Zoom. But we hold our webinars and our informational calls on Zoom because you can see each other's faces, and I mean people can turn their video off if they'd like, but it really creates a a more humanizing environment. So you can see you can really see each other and. I think there's a lot to be said about the visual of chatting with people mm-hmm. over over that platform. Okay. I want to go all the way back to open book. Great. Um, Cecile, you had mentioned that you all have open book, and I assume that means that your financials, your financial statement, your profit and loss statement, your balance sheet, everything is all four of y'all employees can see it. Is that what you were talking about? Yeah, definitely. And it, it um, it's a little more complex than that in the sense that in order to understand financials, you have to do some learning. So we're also involved in, in uh, training each other, make sure we understand what we're looking at. Um, so open book management um, is, is really uh, works best when there's a sort of a rigorous and, and ongoing training program for 
all of the worker owners to, to learn exactly what this is. Because beyond just looking at the finances, we would then want to have the creative conversation about, well, what could we be doing differently? And maybe if this part of our model isn't working, you know, how do we how do we leverage the, the, the genius that all of us have um, to help us get where we want to go more effectively, more efficiently? Um, so it's not just about looking at the numbers. It's also about helping to creatively make what our intended model is uh, work better. Um, and so that's, that's just a really important piece of it because you, in order to feel like you have a piece of the pie, you literally need that, not just in terms of your pay, but also in terms of your ability to contribute to well, what is our business model and to make changes in that if it's not working. And that's, that's a profound level of power that, you, you know, when you, when you can give that to the people who are doing the work, all of a sudden you get to activate these really cool, like, you know, engagement and creativity that comes from each individual being, you know, basically lit up by this opportunity to be involved in creating their own livelihood in a very real and meaningful way. So I get that the double-edged sword with his open book uh, policy or management style is that one is people have to train and learn what they're looking at to make sure they really can comprehend what these numbers are telling them. And then secondly, <clears throat> It gives them a lot of power, and that's what you said, but it also gives them a lot of responsibility. Indeed. They have to read yeah. it. They have to understand it. They have to communicate back. And I don't think everybody want, want to do that. <laughs> well, you're absolutely right. Not everybody does. Um, I envision a world where everyone does in the future, um, but given, again, where we've come from historically, Taking on responsibility is um, is not always desired. Sometimes people really just want to go do their job, clock out at the end of the day, put it away, and not think about it. And um, there's valid reasons for that. Uh, so uh, being a part of a worker co-op or being part of a co-op that's, that's really managed in this democratic participatory way isn't for everybody yet. Um, so you do need to sort of select for people for whom this is something that they want to, they really want to do. They want to get in and do the learning. They're willing to, you know, wake up in the middle of the night and sweat over some things if they need to. You know, the uncomfortable parts of being a business owner are come along with that. And um, so, but I, my sense is, you know, back to the educating of our world about the potential of the co-op model, that the more it is embedded in our culture, the the more people will realize that, you know, this responsibility also comes with a tremendous amount of, you know, creativity and engagement and sense of purpose in your life, which isn't, you know, isn't something you can buy, right? That's something that yeah, you, you have to live into. And, and frankly, it's fairly rare in our world for, for people to have work that is deeply meaningful and purposeful to them. And so it is valuable. Um, but at this time, yeah, it's not. It's not for everyone. You know, um, we had um, people in the first year. This is our fifth year. October will be five years. Um, and when we started this, ladies, we were only going to do it for a month. But the, <laughs> uh, wow! Yeah, we cool. were very pleased with the number of people that wanted to be on, and and then the conversations like this that we can have. But Rodney North uh, from Eco Exchange, he was with Eco Exchange at the time, and that first December they were on. And he was saying how, <clears throat> as board chair, he may be a, a meeting uh, with the president and the manager, the CEO, and he is in a meeting, and his role is he's an employee, so that the manager is telling him what to do. And then he said at night he may be in a meeting where he's chairing the board where he's telling the manager what to do. He said learning how to do those roles and step in and out of them was also something he had to do. So it can be a lot different than going to work at 9 o'clock and cl clicking off at 5 and don't have anything else to do. It's, there's, yeah, the trade-off. Yeah. But everybody that's been on this show, well, let me ask you guys first to see if this is true. Do you like what you're doing? <laughs> yes. Yes, for sure. Why is this it? Or, or, or who was going to speak? <laughs> oh, I, uh, Rebecca here. Okay. I was going to say, I think I was, so I've been with 
Brown Sky for about two years, now a little over two years. And before I was working here, I was working for different nonprofits that were smaller and didn't have a lot of money. And I just, I quit because I felt that I, one, that the nonprofits I was working at weren't solving problems. They were kind of putting band-aids on problems and not the people I was working with weren't willing to think about it systemically about why we needed that nonprofit. And that was really frustrating for me. And I hadn't been a part of the worker co-op movement, but I knew I wanted to think about economic justice and racial justice and social justice. And so I started following the worker co-op movement. I actually, I read Collective Courage and then I was like, wow, that is um, the book by Jessica Gordon Nimbard. Nimhard. That's how you pronounce Jessica okay. Gordon Nimhard. Um, yes. Nimhard, yes. And I just was believe that that that's the next step. That worker working at a worker co-op or some or an organization that was thinking about worker co-op was what I wanted wanted to do. And it's been more uh, meaningful and also stressful than I would have ever imagined. Wait, and, wait, wait, wait! You said meaningful and stressful. Yes. Okay. Meaningful and stressful than I would have imagined in terms of the the responsibility and but also having being able to like I had mentioned earlier just as members economic participation was just not a reality for me at all not an option so it's not that I didn't want to do it that it was a, a big boundary between me and the for in this particular nonprofit mm -hmm. huge boundary was that was the business model even though our team was four people and even three people at one time, it still was like off bounds to anyone who wasn't the executive director or the board. And so I just think there's there's a sense of um, power and meaningfulness that comes with knowing, just having, just knowing what the finances are just seems so important. Money is so tricky. Yes. Right? We're all coming from different class backgrounds. I'm, I come from like a strange fragmented class background. So I like to see what like, what kind of, what's the situation? And I've always worked for nonprofits that didn't have a lot of money. So this, it's just been really working at a worker co-op that has open book management, that's thinking about power and how we're working together is a breath of fresh air for me. Although Fantastic. very challenging. Fantastic. So still, we only have about a, a minute left. No, not even that close. What, what, what would you like to close off with? Mm. He's closing us down now. All right. Well, I guess I'd like to circle back to the sort of the pivotal role that I think worker co-ops can play in creating economic, uh, social, and uh, environmental justice in our world. And, and that um, the, the, the really the heart of the matter for me uh, is how we share power. Okay. We and got, if worker co-ops... We got we to gotta close it. I'm we sorry. We got to go. Okay. Thank you, everybody. Please have a great week and work cooperatively. Yes, thank thank you. you so much. All right.